It's our time of uh, scripture before Pastor Ben comes, and today we're going to be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. Let's go to the reading of his word. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because of the long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you have thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you may have said may come upon me. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. There's a, a small event going on right now. And um, I know you're American, so you don't even know what I'm talking about. Anybody, does any, is anybody else having a hard time being here right now? Any, nobody. Just me, sacrificing. Okay, good. Um, so as soon, okay, if, can I just say, do not talk to me after this at all about that game, okay? What? It's the World Cup final, guys. It's the World Cup final. Um, don't talk to me afterwards. My life group's getting together. We're going to have a little watch party, and I'm turning my phone off, and I'm not talking to anyone. So don't you dare, okay? Anyways. Um, Hey, if this is your first time here, I like soccer. I know I'm one of the only here, but um, welcome. Thank you, Jess. Hey, in the, in the back. I see you in the back. Great. Great. The silent, not majority, minority, I guess. All right. Oh, man, let's, let's dive in. Um, Antonio Salieri, I don't know if that's how to say his name. I'm just going to go with that. It might change a couple times throughout this story. Uh, he was a composer, he was a court musician in Vienna in the late 19, not 1917, 70s. Uh, he worked hard at his craft, and he tried and disciplined himself and practiced. He was well respected for his work. Uh, and in the end, he wrote melodies that you could describe as nice. 
and he composed choral pieces that were fine, and he directed operas that were good. And in all of it, he gave God thanks. In fact, as a young man, he once prayed, and I quote, Let me make music that will glorify you, Father. Help me lift the hearts of people to heaven, and let me serve you through my music. Because in his mind, his ability was a gift from God, even though he had to work really hard at honing it and getting better at it. And he wanted to use it to glorify the Lord. For a while, that's exactly what he did. He glorified God with his music. But then one day, the boy wonder stepped onto the scene, and everything changed. Six-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the child prodigy, uh, was dazzling the crowds, and he was playing music like no one had ever heard before him. And he would come up with these melodies that were complex, and they were technical, but they were also beautiful and engaging. And it was as if his songs brought heaven right down to earth. And Salieri saw the boy and was a little jealous. As Mozart grew in age and as he grew in ability, as he grew in fame, Salieri grew in bitterness and in envy and ultimately in rage because in his mind it wasn't fair. He was a religious man. He was a pious man. He was an obedient servant to the Lord. But somehow, if you know anything about Mozart, he was not pious. He was not obedient. He was not a great guy. This immature, vulgar, obscene adolescent was given more ability and more talent than he could ever dream of. Have you ever had those conversations with God? You're like trying to obey him. You're showing up to church even though the World Cup is going on. And you know people who aren't here right now. And I do too. <laughs> and I'm struggling. Just joking. Um, you're like, you expect to get something out of it. And then you see the wicked prosper. And they get what you want, what you don't have. And you're like, what's the deal? That's what's going on in Slurry's mind. Slurry's, I think that's how you say his name. Who knows? He had uh, spent a lifetime trying to craft uh, through discipline and hard work his ability. And it wasn't fair that this godless boy got what he didn't have without even making a little effort. So he became his rival and he became his enemy and his rivalry with Mozart is legendary to this day. Now, if you know anything about Mozart, uh, you know that he was mysteriously poisoned and killed. Um, and uh, the rumor at the time was that Salieri was the one who did it. Um, now, he actually admitted to doing it at one point. But then he recanted that admission and took it back, and he said he was, he was a little insane. And so we don't know if he did it or not. But one thing is for sure is that a year after the poisoning, Salieri lost his mind, and he got locked up in an insane asylum. There's this old movie. It actually used to be a play, and it was turned into a film in, I think, 1980s or something, and it was called Amadeus. And it's about Mozart, but it's through the eyes of his rival, and in the dramatic climax of this movie, Salieri is sitting in his cell in the insane asylum, losing his mind, wasting away, and at the crescendo of the movie, he curses God for denying him the talent that he had given to Mozart. 
He started his life as a follower of Jesus. Then he ends his life as a foe. Cursing him. All because he didn't get what he wanted more than anything. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, described our human condition like this. He said, if you have any knowledge at all of human nature, you know that those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with the false sense of security of greatness. But if there is any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Christ, however, never asked for admirers. He only spoke of followers and disciples. Antonio Salieri admired Jesus, but he didn't follow Jesus. And we know that he didn't actually follow Jesus because of how he responded when he didn't get what he thought he deserved. In the testing, in the trial, in the temptation, his true colors came out. He proved who he really was. He wanted greatness more than he wanted God. And in the end, his bitterness caused him to fall away. Now, I share his story with you, even though it was hard because I couldn't say his name. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, But it's a close parallel, or at least there are some close parallels to what Doug just read for us in Acts chapter 8. The musician and the magician have a lot in common. Simon was a great and powerful man. Everyone in Samaria paid attention to him. In fact, look back at verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. Because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. Now, let's just stop here for a minute because throughout Luke's narrative, whenever he talks about magic, he's not just talking about some circus tricks. Um, You know, he's not like David Blaine walking around with some cards. Have you ever watched those uh, documentaries? I I used to love these things. And he he would blow people's minds because he'd be standing outside of a a shop with a glass window. And he'd throw the cards up against the window and then a card would be on the inside. And we'd be like, how did he do that? It's magic. And then he'd just walk away, you know, and disappear sort of. Um, That's not what Luke is talking about. He's not talking about Penn and Teller pulling rabbits out of their hats or David Copperfield, you know, making the drum kit disappear. Whenever Luke talks about magic, he's talking about satanic and demonic um, power being actualized in and through someone. And so Simon is not just a, a cheap magician. Simon is a sorcerer. I got kids, so I've been watching Aladdin recently, more recently than probably you. And so when I think of Simon the magician, I think of Jafar, okay? That's who I've got in my mind. You think of any sorcerer you know. Um, He was such a powerful sorcerer that the people in Samaria thought that he was the power of God embodied. Did you see that phrase? He's the power of God who is great. Some scholars have shown that Simon actually claimed to be a God, not God, but a God. And I think the language in the text backs it up. Church history certainly does. And so Simon, the sorcerer, had power. He had influence. He had money. He had the entire region worshiping at his feet. The text tells us twice that everyone paid attention to him. That literally means they followed him. They're about to follow Jesus, though. 
But up until this point, they've been following Simon, a God, who is the power of God. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a Jewish refugee shows up by the name of Philip. He's fleeing from Saul, who's ravaging the church. You remember we saw last week at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, and everything changes. Look back at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by him. It's that same word again. They followed him. They paid attention to Philip when they heard and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, those are demons, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Guys, Simon was a man of great power, and all of a sudden, Philip's got greater power. Simon was a man who could do all kinds of signs and wonders, but Philip's signs and wonders were way better. Simon was a man who was empowered by demons, and then Philip shows up and just starts casting them out. And Simon's like, oh boy, I've never seen anything like this before. I need some of that. What's he got? There's this great revival in the city. The gospel of Christ is taking root. The power of the Spirit's revealed in signs and wonders. Everyone, including Simon, is amazed. And so they start believing and they're being baptized. And it's an incredible move of God. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Guys, Simon didn't just lose the competition to Philip. Simon was converted by Philip. He believed and he was baptized and then he continued with Philip. He became a follower of Jesus. Or did he? That's the big question of this text that we're going to look at today. Now, some more background. The apostles are still back in Jerusalem. They hear about this great revival that's happening in Samaria. In Samaria. And if you remember from last week, the Samaritans hate the Jews. Um, and and there, there's a lot of bad blood that goes back a thousand years. And so the apostles are in Jerusalem, and they hear about a revival in, the, in Samaria. And they're like, I don't know. Like, Peter, John, go check it out, because that can't be right. There's no way. And so they send Peter and John to go check it out, because even though Jesus had told them to go to Samaria, they're still not sure anything good can happen there. So they go there. They see all these new believers. They pray over them. They lay hands on them, and they give them the Holy Spirit. And boom, all of a sudden... (laughs) Now the power that Philip had is in every single person who had believed in the name of Christ. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to train for it. They didn't have to go to Hogwarts School of Magic to develop it. All they needed was the apostles to lay their hands on them, pray over them, and they had the spirit of the living God living inside of them, filling them with his power. And you got Simon over here thinking, now that is an incredible magic trick. I got to get my hands on that. I want to pause here for a minute before we look at the rest of Simon's story because that's really the point of this. But there is, 
in this scene, I mean, there's a lot of questions that are raised. Um, what in the world is going on with the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that a little odd? Uh, usually when Luke talks about people believing and being baptized, uh, he's talking about their conversion to Christ. And the testimony of the rest of Acts and the testimony of the rest of the New Testament is that when someone converts to Christ, they get the Holy Spirit. Conversion to Christ, baptism of the Spirit. It's amazing. It's instantaneous. For example, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, he says, repent, he's talking to the Jews, repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized. He's talking about conversion now, not that baptism is a part of conversion, but it immediately follows. And each of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, believe, be baptized, you'll be filled. Galatians 3, 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith, again, is talking about the moment of faith. The moment you heard the gospel and received it by faith. Did you not receive the Spirit in that, in that moment? That's what he's asking there. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are children... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So again, the moment you became children of God through faith in Christ, you got the spirit. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not of the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So in other words, if you're a Christian, you've got the spirit. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. That's what Romans 8 is saying. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now, some people think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that you get when you are more sanctified, when you're further along in your journey with Christ. But these believers at Corinth, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, were anything but mature and anything but far along. In fact, the entire letter is like, man, I wish you'd be further along. Like, I've been feeding you for so long. You're still on the milk. You need to be on steak at this point. What's going on? I mean, they're doing so much crazy stuff there that I feel awkward even talking about it. They're not a great church. They are probably the worst and the most immature church that Paul has ever planted. They're not, they're not great. And I look at us, and I'm like, man, thank God. <laughs> man, we, we've sure got our problems, but we are not the church at Corinth. And yet even that church had the spirit of the living God inside of them. Paul says, you are sanctuaries of the spirit. I could go on and on, but the point is that the testimony of Scripture is clear. When you believe in Christ, you receive his spirit. Simultaneous. He makes your heart his dwelling place at the moment of salvation. So if that's true, then there's a big question, what in the world's going on in Samaria? What's that all about? Why do these new believers need apostles to come down, lay their hands on them, pray over them so that they can receive the Spirit? And what's the deal with all the signs and the wonders that follow it? Because when I got saved, I didn't start raising dead people, casting demons out. So there's this incredible phenomenon that takes place in Acts chapter 8. What, what are we supposed to make of that? If that's 
what happened when they got the Spirit isn't the exact same thing supposed to happen to us when we get the Spirit? And, th- and those are good questions. If you're asking those questions, if they pop into your mind when, when we read the text, that's good. Those are the questions that should pop into your mind. I think the, the best way to understand what's going on in Samaria is to see not just how it fits into the whole New Testament, but how it fits into the, the, the narrative of Acts as a whole. Because in the book of Acts, there are actually four places where this happens. And the normal reading of Acts is believe, be baptized, spirit, awesome. But there are four places where that is not the case. The first is in Acts 2. The spirit is bestowed at Pentecost. Signs and wonders are carried out. Tongues of fire. It's an incredible scene. The church is born. That's the first moment. The second moment is here in Acts 8. Again, the spirit is bestowed. Apostles pray. They lay hands. There's insane phenomena going on, signs and wonders, and the church spreads to Samaria. The third time is in Acts 10 and 11. The Spirit is bestowed. Signs and wonders are done. And in that scene, the church spreads to the Gentiles. Finally, in Acts 19, the Spirit again is bestowed. Only this time in the city of Ephesus, and the church spreads even further. That story is unique in and of itself because it's dealing with followers of John the Baptist. We'll talk about it in a few months. It's going to be great. The point is this. Every time Luke mentions a special bestowal of the Spirit, especially with the apostles involved, with subsequent signs and wonders, it always involves a new stage of gospel advancement in the world. So the Jews receive a special bestowal in Acts 2, the Samaritans get one in Acts 8, and then the Samaritans are half-breeds, and then the Gentiles get one in Acts 10 and 11. Whenever a new people group is exposed to the gospel of Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit in this kind of unique way. The powers of darkness are essentially being put on notice. That the kingdom of God is on the move. That it's taking ground. That it's advancing in the world. Demons are being cast out. It's spiritual warfare. That people are being set free from oppression. Illnesses are healed. Dead people are raised back to life. On and on it goes. And so what's going on in Acts 8 with this bestowal of the Spirit? It's a new people group. The gospel has not gone to Samaria yet. It's a new region. It's a new territory. It's a new stage in the life of the church. It's a new stage in the advancement of the kingdom. And so the apostles are actively involved in it. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts. Now, that's just a side note. That's not actually the point of this story. With that being said, let's get to the main point, which is Simon the sorcerer. Look back at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. It's like the nicest way to put it in English. He's literally saying to hell with you and your money. That's what Peter's saying here. May your silver perish with you. Gotta love Peter. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. 
And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We don't see or hear from Simon again in the rest of the New Testament. But if you read church history, especially the early fathers like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, they talk about him a lot. And what we know from church history is that Simon the sorcerer did not respond well to Peter. He said, may you pray for me so that these things don't happen to me. And then he left and didn't repent. In fact, Justin Martyr, who also just so happened to be a Samaritan, wrote that Simon was once again empowered by demons to perform magic and that later on he was honored in Rome as a god. Irenaeus wrote about Simon, and this is so sad. He wrote that he ended up becoming the arch villain of the early church and the one, and I quote, from whom all sorts of Gnostic heresies derived their origin. So if you've ever heard of Gnostic theology, which we're not, we don't have time to get into right now, but basically Jesus is a good teacher, but he's just a man. He's not the son of God. And you have the Gnostic Gospels and the whole Da Vinci Code and all that kind of stuff. You can trace it, according to Irenaeus, back to Simon the sorcerer, the arch villain of the church. This is what I need you to see today. It is possible to be an admirer of Jesus and to go through the motions of belief and even be baptized and not actually be a believer. We saw this so much in the book of James and if you feel like I'm beating a dead horse, I just take whatever text is in front of me. I can't help it. It's just what's there. It's screaming at us again in Acts chapter 8. Guys, I can't help but think that there are people in this room right now who need to hear this. Why else would God keep making me say it? I get tired of saying it. I'll be honest with you. It's not fun. Some of you have been coming for a few months and you're like, oh no, not this one again. You can be a fan of Jesus and not be his follower. Somebody needs to hear that right now. Some of you are fans of Jesus and you are not followers. You can be close to Jesus and not be converted. You can go through all the motions, you can say all the right things and still be driven by all the wrong motivations. God does not look at your actions. He looks at your heart. He doesn't care if you raise your hands in worship. He doesn't, say, he doesn't care if you skip the World Cup to come to church. He cares about why. Guys, Simon is meant to be another warning for you and for me. So I have two questions I want to ask you. It's going to be short. What do you want more than anything else? The gifts of God or God himself? Let's start here. What do you want? You want power? You want money? Fame? Success? Maybe a wife? Husband? Some little juniors running around? 
Maybe just some friends to do life with. What do you want? Why are you in this room right now? You could be anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here in this room. <laughs> I'm glad, by the way. Thought I was going to be alone today. Why are you here? What are you hoping to get out of this? It's really interesting in verse 13. And this is so funny to me. It says, Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. You could circle that word, continued with, because in the Greek, it's more like he stayed obnoxiously close to Philip. It's got like an annoying sense to it. Um, you ever been around somebody who's clingy? Yeah. <laughs> not, not the woman you have your arm around. 100% no. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll be hearing about that one after this, man. Oh, man. So, so he's talking about somebody else, um, of course. But um, that's the idea that you have with Simon. It's like he's seen this power in Philip, and then he just becomes like a lap dog. He's a lackey. He just wants to be close to Philip. Well, I just imagine Philip turning around, and it's like Dwight and Michael. You know, he's just always there, you know. And Philip's like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. He'd seen power before, but not like the, the power that Philip had. You know, and he really wanted to be close to it. And so from the very beginning, verse 13 tells us that he is motivated by a lust for power. I mean, he's been the sorcerer. He's been the great power of God. And now he's seen something that's even better. And he's like, okay, I, got, I, I want that. So you can see his motivation right from the beginning. That's what he wanted. Not God, but the gifts that God could give. So when he asked Peter and John if he can buy this power from them, they can immediately see that his heart is consumed with bitterness, his heart is consumed with envy, and they call him out for it. And so again, I'll ask you, when you pray, let me, let me just, here's, a, here's another diagnostic question. When you pray, do, do you find yourself asking God for more of him or do you find yourself asking God for more of something else? I need more money. I want more friends. I could really use more opportunities. I need more success. I want more security. Or I want more of you. What do you want more? The gifts of God or God himself? It's Christmas time. The season of gift giving and gift receiving. It's the most wonderful, most magical time of year. Last night, Caroline and I spent some time wrapping some presents for our kids. And uh, so fun. We're going to open a few of them today because I just can't wait. Because I love seeing my kids open presents. Like, I don't even get presents anymore. Caroline and I are like, do you want to do presents? Nah. Like, it's just so much more fun to give them. And so... Um, we're wrapping presents last night, and I was thinking about it, and um, it's so funny. Our kids aren't in this stage now, but when they're really young, like, you know, one, two, pushing three, when they're in that toddler, toddler stage, um, 
you could get them the greatest present in the entire world. You could put all of your thought and energy and time and money and effort and find the perfect toy that matches their personality and interests and everything else. And they will open that toy and they will hold it and shake it and they will put it down and then they will play with the box every single time. And, and, and if it's a big box, even better They'll be playing in that box for hours, and then you look at e we look at each other like, why did we get them a toy? Like we could have just got them a musty old box. Makes no sense. They choose the cardboard every time. Um, guys, this is how so many of us approach God and, and the gift of God. He packages his presence with all kinds of blessings and delights and rewards. But the real gift, the ultimate gift, is him. And we so often trade the gift of his presence for the packages that it comes in. As if the package is the present. And yeah, it's great, but it's not the ultimate thing. More often than not, we find ourselves like little kids playing in cardboard, talking about how, man, we just want more love and more purpose and more community and some more peace and some more freedom and some more joy. And on and on the list goes, but those are packages. Those are secondary things, and they're meant to draw us in to the gift itself. And the gift is the one who gives it. It's God. Very rarely do we ever find ourselves talking about wanting God. Simon wanted the power of the Spirit, not the presence of the Spirit. And I just can't help but think of Israel on their way into the promised land. They finally are knocking at the door. They're, they're about to go in. And God is so mad at them for their rebellion. He's like, you know what? You can have my power, but I'm not going in with you. I'm done with you. So you can have the gift, but you don't get me. And I, I always, I, I ask myself this all the time. What would I have done? Would I have been okay with that? Like if you could get all the power of God and no relationship, no intimacy, no fellowship, but you got the power, would you take it? Moses said, no way, we're not going anywhere without you. We want your presence. Without your presence, we die. And he begged God and he pleaded with God according to God's promises and according to God's word. And so God went in with them. So I'll ask you again, what do you want more than anything else in the world? The gifts of God or God himself? That's a hard question, isn't it? Second, what do you want more than anything else? God to do something through you or God to do something in you? This is one I really struggle with, by the way. I, I would say probably most vocational pastors, most people who work in ministry struggle with this one. Because it's, it's nice to accomplish things in your job. You know what I mean? And doesn't that feel good when you, when you accomplish something? No? Okay, cool. <laughs> we want to see God transform lives and we want to see him renew minds and heal hearts and open eyes and, and sometimes my first thought is God oh I want you to do those things through me not I want you to do those things in me 
We want to be used by God, and that is a good thing. But sometimes we forget that we need to be changed by God. If we care more about being used by the Spirit than we care about being transformed by the Spirit, we put ourselves in the same boat as Simon. And it's not a good boat to be in. He saw the sign. He saw the transformation that was being done in the people's lives. And rather than seeing his own need to be transformed, he thought, hey, I could be the guy who does that for others. You ever want to be seen for doing good? It's like there's a certain status that comes with being a minister of the gospel. It's a weird thing because it's not like worldly status. It's just like in the Christian community. It's like there's a certain respect that comes with it of, of being the guy or the girl that leads others to Christ or being the guy or the girl that leads a group that's, that, that's able to, to pour into and mentor and disciple others. There's a respect that comes with that that's able to teach the word of God with clarity and integrity and people actually want to listen to it. There's, there's some respect that comes with that. And how many people want to serve the Lord and be used by the Lord, not just so that they're the ones who get to do it, but so that they're seen as the ones who get to do it? Gospel is just a means to an end. I was reminded of, of the late Ravi Zacharias this past week as I was studying this passage. Now, Ravi was a man who had a powerful gift of communication. He could preach the gospel. He could defend the faith better than anyone I've ever heard. And I'll never forget, I was in junior high, probably sixth grade. My family and I went to Chicago uh, for a conference, and Ravi Zacharias was preaching at that conference. And I have never heard anything like it in my life just to give you an idea of, of how amazing this guy was, because maybe some of you have never heard of him. Um, during his sermon, we were so moved with emotion that on three separate occasions, everybody stood up and clapped and cheered. Three standing ovations in one sermon for this guy. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> okay. No. He was incredible. He preached to millions of people. He impacted countless lives around the world, including my own. I can honestly say that the Spirit of God used him in mighty ways to transform the hearts of his audience. And yet, his heart was never changed. After his death, all kinds of reports came out about his sexual deviancy, his abuse of power, his exploitation of women, and on and on it went. Countless millions were devastated, including me. The thing that's crazy about Ravi, though, is the fact that his motives were always out in the open. We just didn't see it. We didn't pay attention to him. For example, six years ago, before any accusation ever came out, before he was in the news for any negative reason at all, six years ago, there wasn't a single investigation into his behavior. There was an atheist on YouTube called the Friendly Banjo Atheist. He is very friendly. I enjoy his movies. Um, 
tried to expose Ravi for the fraud that he was. But he, he's, no one watches this guy's channel. He's like playing the banjo, talking about Ravi Zacharias. Like, it's a very niche audience, okay? <laughs> um, and uh, I didn't find this guy till well after all this stuff happened. And I was just doing research and stuff. And um, this guy exposed that Ravi lied so often, almost all the time, on his website, in his books, um, about his credentials, about who he was and what he had done. For example, he lied about being a visiting scholar at Cambridge. He lied about taking a class from a guy who wasn't even teaching the class. He lied about being a senior research fellow at Oxford. He lied about having three doctorates. He lied about winning the Asian Youth Preacher Award, a competition that didn't even exist. You just go on and on and on. He was a liar. Nobody knew it, except for the friendly banjo atheist. The great preacher was nothing more than a pretender. It's fascinating, and it's tragic at the same time, because in his autobiography, he talks about how before his conversion, he felt like a nobody, and he felt like a failure, and he felt like a disappointment, and he actually wanted to kill himself, and he thought about killing himself because he wanted to do something great with his life, and he wanted to be something great with his life, but he knew he wasn't good at anything. And so then he believed, and he preached for the first time. And after he preached, he talks about in his autobiography how everyone came up to him and told him how great he was, that he did an awesome job, that he was going to be used by God, that he had impacted their lives, and they're patting him on the back. And he says, in that moment, I knew I was going to be a great preacher. He's going to be seen and celebrated as a great preacher of the gospel of Jesus. The tragedy of his life unfolded because he was more interested in communicating the gospel than he was in conforming to the gospel. He wanted to be thought of as close to Jesus, but he wasn't bothered by the fact that he wasn't close to him at all. Now, I get the fact that I'm preaching to myself right now because I'm Besides, I'm preaching to you too, Caleb. I mean, we got like, you know, and Doug preaches too every once in a while, and Jonathan's going to preach New Year's. Um, so I know I'm, there's a very select few people who are preaching right now that I'm preaching to, but the question is, is, is still the same for you. What do you want more? To be thought of as holy? To be seen as being this powerful worker with the Holy Spirit? Or actually being holy? Actually being close to God and walking with him and talking with him daily? Or do you just want to be seen as someone who is doing all this great stuff? That's the story of Simon the Magician. And I would not be surprised if that is some of your stories today as well. Some of you maybe have been, like I said, sitting in here for months. Some of you, this is your first time. You need to hear this right now. Because it takes more than being a good old southern boy and a good old southern girl to be a follower of Jesus. It takes more than even going through the motions of saying you believe in God and even getting baptized. Belief in Jesus is receiving the gift of Jesus, which is redemption by grace through faith. As you bring nothing to the table, but then... 
It is a daily walking with and submitting to in obedience and joyful submission to the Spirit and saying, I'm not my own anymore. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you can't just be my fan. You've got to get on a cross and deny yourself. That's what it means. Count the cost. And there's so many people in Charlotte who think, yeah, I believe in God. I'm good. I was baptized. I'm good. I'm skipping the World Cup. I'm at church. I'm good. And guys, I am so thankful that you have done those things because to me, that means the Holy Spirit is working in your life and he's trying to draw you to himself. And maybe he drew you into this room on this day, right here and right now. And you didn't know why you stepped foot in here, but it's because you needed to hear that you are not a real follower of Jesus, that you love his gifts more than you love him, that you want to be used by him rather than actually being worked on by him. And you're not who you think you are, and you need to hear that. Because Peter's call to Simon was rejected, but the same call is available to you, and you still have time. Peter said, repent. Stop. Stop chasing after all of these things that can't satisfy you anyways. Stop living a lie. Stop living as a charade. Stop putting on a show. Stop, repent, turn. So that you may be forgiven. If God is nothing more than a means to an end, then in the moments of testing, and in the moments of temptation, and in the moments of trial, you will fall away just like Simon. It's a tragedy. Luke 8, Jesus tells his parable of the four soils. He puts it like this in verse 13. He says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. That's the story of Simon, the sorcerer. He loved signs and he loved wonders, but he didn't love the Savior. He received the word with joy at first, but when he wasn't getting what he wanted, he fell away. He was obsessed with the idea of power and with the idea of status, and he couldn't see his need for salvation. He believed, but his belief was only skin deep. And in the end, he fell away. Guys, all I can say to you right now, just in this moment, hear me. Don't follow in his footsteps. Salvation is at hand. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. That God and his divine wisdom and his divine mercy and his loving kindness and his relentless pursuit of you has drawn you into this day, into this room to hear this word. Don't reject it. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray where you are and respond. If you are in Christ, if you have believed, oh man, 
you're just like me and you know that you still struggle with your flesh and you know that those two questions hit like a ton of bricks because we go back and forth, don't we? And so confess sin that needs to be confessed. Confess idolatry that needs to be confessed. If there's a promise that you need to believe, believe it. And if you are not yet a real follower of Jesus, you can pray right where you are and you can become one right now. Let me invite you to pray and then we'll go to the table together.